Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Hello, everybody. This is David Warren, co-founder of Bridgeford Trust Company and chairman of the board. And uh, very happy to be here with another installment of our podcast series. Uh, I have uh, have said lately, it's amazing to me how successful this has become over the years. And uh, we're thrilled with the, the quality of talent that we've been able to interview in our industry uh, to talk about uh, big ideas and important developments. And, and today's pretty exciting for me to bring back, uh, I, I, at least uh, for the second time, maybe the third time, uh, my friend Bill Lipkin. Um, Bill is, uh, before I tell you and remind our audience just, just how amazing Bill Lipkin is, uh, he's been a, a really a mentor to me over the years. He's taught me a lot about a lot of things, uh, tax-related and, and, and trust-related, and uh, and he's always been somebody, in my view, that's just a tremendous um, international and really international thought leader in so many different areas. And and today we're going we're gonna to talk about um, a very important development out of California involving Ings. But before we, we get into all that, I want to just remind everybody of, of Bill's background. Um, he's, he's chair of Wilson Elser's Tax Planning Controversies Practice um, and uh, a very prolific writer, uh, not just on incomplete non-grantor trust, but uh, a whole myriad of other tax issues. Uh, I think every couple of years or every year or so, he produces something that that is 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 relevant in our industry. I know he wrote an article about <clears throat> the South Dakota spousal, special spousal trust, which was uh, widely read years ago in, in, a, in, a, in a planning tool that he and I both are pretty pretty passionate about. Um, but Bill's background professionally, of course, is, is very impressive. And I, I refer to him, uh, and he may not know this, as sort of the, the, the godfather of, uh, of the Ng strategy, because I think he's the most prolific and has written most prolifically about it. Uh, and, and as we had talked about years ago in a podcast, I, I think he still remains, uh, he and his team, um, had, having the most private letter rulings filed on the issue, uh, all of which were positive. And um, and I, I think he's just a tremendous thought leader in this space. I mean, he's a Harvard Law grad, um, which is an impressive in and of itself, and got his LLM um, from um, from uh, New York University. And so I'm, I'm, I, I'm humbled to call Bill a friend. Uh, I'm thrilled to have been able to be mentored by him over the years. He's been protective of Bridgeford, and uh, and he's somebody that we trust implicitly. So this topic today, Bill, I know is is also near and dear to your heart. Uh, together, we've worked on on Ings, a lot of them out of California, but also around the country. And every time uh, the, the, these three letters come up, I, you're always my, my first call, and you and you always will be on the topic. So, Bill, I'll let you say hello first. I know I've been going on about how amazing you are. So, welcome back to our podcast. Uh, th- thank you, David. Um, you've been a, a great longtime friend, uh, not only of me, but of our entire team. And uh, the, the universe should know that you and Bridgeford are right at the top of the list as go-to for our team, for all of our clients uh, throughout uh, the country. Um, so it's, it's an honor for me to, whenever you invite me, I view it as an honor at my end. And thank you very much. 
Okay, so let's just jump right into it. You know, I, I've, as I mentioned already, uh, as I introduced you, you, you were an expert in this ing space. Why don't, before we talk about, I think, maybe changes, how about we define it again for the audience? Because maybe not everybody is, is totally familiar with it, if you don't mind. Well, the, the concept of ing really turns on the internal revenue code, and it just stands for incomplete non-grantor trust. And that's not a code uh, phrase, but... There is a stuff in the code that says what it takes to be a grantor trust. And as you know, if it's a grantor trust, all of the income of the trust is on the taxpayer's personal return. So if it's not a grantor trust, if, for example, it's a South Dakota trust that's not a grantor trust, then all the income is taxable under South Dakota law, which has no state income tax. So that causes people in high-tax states like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, to say, well, I'd much rather have my uh, income, uh, to the extent it can be, taxed in a no-tax state than a tax state. And the Supreme Court has long held for about 100 years that an intangible, like stock in a company, or a partnership interest or an LLC interest is domiciled where the owner is domiciled. So your standard situation in California, somebody goes to sell their company, it's an LLC, you put the ownership interest into the non-grantor trust, it gets sold for a gazillion dollars and California gets nothing. Putting to one side, they do have a throwback rule. But uh, that's the very thing that Governor Newsom uh, wanted to change. Uh, so his new bill, effective July 10th, says if you're a, a non-grantor trust as defined by the Internal Revenue Code, we're going to treat it as a grantor trust for California. And I should point out, this is uh, retroactive. There's no grandfathering for old trusts. There's no grandfathering for old contributions to the trust. Starting 1-123, all income of a incomplete non-grantor trust for federal purposes will be taxed as a grantor trust for California. Yeah, let's let's pause on that for a moment because I, you know, I, of course, talking about this all over the country with, with folks that we work with and, and planners and that was a bit of a surprise to me, and I certainly don't profess to be the tax expert that, that you are, um, but some have suggested or asked the question, I suppose, is this even constitutional? And, and if this were to be challenged and taken <clears throat> up to the you know some sort of court or appellate court somewhere, that this might not even survive. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, New York passed a statute with a, in many ways similar to this, not quite as draconian. Um, several years ago, and I'm not aware of any New York court saying the New York statute was unconstitutional. <clears throat> and it's sort of been um, gospel for uh, uh, tax practitioners that when you start off a calendar year, there's never anything carved and granted as to what the tax rate's going to be uh, uh, for that year. So there's nothing unconstitutional about passing something in October and November retroactive to January 1. In this case, they haven't gone back to say, you know, we're going to tax a transaction that occurred in 22. They're only dealing with 23. I think the constitutional argument 
can be raised, but um, my instinct is that uh, more likely than not, it probably won't prevail. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. It's, it's, it's interesting in sort in terms of the, and I, I, I trying to come up with a clever metaphor for California, but it was it was pretty. It was like an earthquake in the tax world because you know this this concept and in many respects thanks to your work and writing, became became so well accepted in California. There was a lot of concern. If you go back a couple of years ago, the board had introduced New York-type legislation a couple of years ago, and we were all holding our breath for a couple of years whether they're going to enact it. And then it was in Governor Newsom's budget uh, that came out in January. For someone to say on July 10th, they <laughs> they got clipped running downfield because they had no idea where this was coming from, you know, that's a bit of an ostrich approach uh, uh, to legislation. We smelled this thing coming. We also, you know, in the back of our heads worry about wealth taxes. But but this did not come, at least for those of us in, in, in the business, uh, as a shock and a surprise. I think some of the language is a, a, a little bit surprising, uh, which would get us to workarounds. But the but but making an incomplete gift trust into a state grantor trust. Uh, we, we, went, <laughs> we went through that with New York, and so this is just the second rung. Yeah. Well, and I guess the, the, the real, I think, thesis of what I want to talk to you about, in, in addition to you know, your explanation of and, and how, you, how you interpret the new law, is you know this there's the sky is falling kind of attitude I've heard a bit in, in California as you know I spend a lot of time there now and and I I'm trying to send the message well no the sky isn't falling um, you know California trusts still don't always make sense and you should always be looking to top tier trust jurisdictions with or without the, uh, the the use of ing so talk to me about that I mean I how are your clients responding and and the referral sources on the West Coast have you have you heard similar com- concerns about you know wow the, this is the end of of tax planning forever kind of a thing. Well, maybe we toilet train our clients. So we, we had one situation uh, that had um, uh, the anticipation in calendar 23 of $200 million on a sale of a company. And uh, when the bill got passed, we were able to manipulate that trust and, and do a couple of... Uh, Q-tip trust involving Bridgeford, uh, which which will we believe uh, will preclude the imposition of the tax when the deal closes in December. So that was a money maker for it. I have uh, other clients with phone calls scheduled. And we talk through uh, the workarounds uh, for it. Let's really focus on that. I mean, I think that's one of the things I, I love about um, our work together is that you know, there, there's always a solution. There's always a workaround. And Vince Lombardi, the audience has to hear, hear for us old people, uh, Vince Lombardi said there's no such thing as a defeat. There are only deferred victories. So <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit more work to get to the deferred victory, but we do not accept defeat. Go ahead, David. I, no, I, I love that. I know that's consistent with your theme. I know that uh, you have a passion around finding victory in the tax space and you, and you typically do. So let's talk about it. I mean, I, 
you know, all is not lost here, clearly. And that's kind of been, as I said earlier, my message in California to, to uh, even even California CPAs and be panicking a bit. So walk me through some of the ideas around um, the workarounds, I guess. I think it's important for people to understand. Well, first of all, we also have a clock ticking on credits uh, for gift federal gift taxes and estate taxes. So the first thing is people should make full use of uh, their 26 some odd million dollars or whatever it's going to be uh, for next year or the year after and do a completed gift. A completed gift, non-grantor trust, works today just like it worked yesterday, like it worked last year. Uh, that's also true in New York. So the the... Yes, if you have a completed gift, you may have to value what you're putting in. There are many an appraiser, uh, including those in California, who can be very creative in valuing minority interest for transfer purposes into a completed gift trust. So your first line of defense is going to be, let's make 100% use of the gift tax credits, which are half of which are disappearing in another year and a half, and the and the strategy of which is is now almost even sacrosanct in uh, California. That's point number one. And, and let's let's pause on that because I, I think that's that's I, I've tried to point that out too, and 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 I think that until they change the exemptions, it's a, it's a real number. I mean, you can there's a lot to work with still there, and and I guess for 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 the audience that you know is maybe a little new to. To the strategy. I mean, as as Bill pointed out, I mean, maybe, when we talk about it in the context of an example, again, when we t- take a real world numbers around it and explain to the audience why all is not lost here and why um, that that is a great first line of defense. Well, I have I have a particular client um, in the L.A. area where we want to put he in this computer software arena. Um, and my Orange County uh, appraiser said that the interest in a minority interest in his company was worth $12 million. We transfer that into a, a South Dakota completed gift non-grantor trust. And if it sells out in two years for $200 million, California's not getting a penny on the, the, the capital gains tax there. It's outside the trust. So a creative valuation of a minority interest with that type of a discount into a completed gift trust in a state like South Dakota is, uh, as, as the children would say, a no-brainer. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I, I appreciate you know, going into that with a little more detail because I, I think there is a fair amount of confusion about what this bill says and what it doesn't say. And and I've heard people in California say that what you just described doesn't work anymore. And I was struggled, you know, as you would say, it's a head scratcher because I don't know where that where they got that from. Um, but let um, excuse me, excuse me, David. Yeah, please. Yeah. Section seventeen o eighty two b. And I'll read the sentence. Notwithstanding subdivision A, said it applies to distributions from an incomplete gift non-grantor trust. That's what the statute says. So it boggles my imagination how somebody can tell you it also applies to a completed gift non-grantor trust. 
Right. No, I agree. And on that point, um, can you talk about the there's there's an exemption exemption here? Talk about the exemption. Um, no, I'm not ready for the exemption yet. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there later. We'll get there. Well, I, I so want to talk. What I want to talk next about, if you'll let me, of course, <laughs> is that <laughs> what did I do with that Beverly Hills client anticipating two hundred million dollars? Um. Because that obviously is not fitting inside a completed gift trust. Right. The we modified his existing trust. It was it was a, an Alaska trust, uh, uh, and we we severed the uh, community property, and we gave each the client and his wife each um, powers of appointment, and each one then set up a. Q-tip, Qualified Terminable Interest Property Trust for the other, avoiding reciprocal trusts. Now, the Q-tip is a completed gift. There's no gift tax. It's a completed gift. And the California statute is talking about an incomplete gift. So immediately, the Q-tip is off the table. Now, what's most interesting about uh, a Q-tip is that you have to pay the income, that's fiduciary income, to the, the other spouse, but you can really do what you want with the principal. You can't give it to anyone other than the spouse, but you don't have to give it to them. There's a regulation in the code that would allow you to treat the corpus as a non-grantor trust, whereas the income is a grantor trust. That's exactly what we've been doing for the last several years in New York, and that's what we did in this case. So coming back, that's $200 million, um, two Q-tips, and the capital gains portion uh, is not going to be subject to California tax. I, I, I don't think there's much wiggle room around the result uh, available to the, uh, uh, the board in California because the statute requires an incomplete gift and a Q-tip is a completed gift. So that's after we got through with using up our, unif our, our credits, um, that's the next line. Now, to, to, for footnotes, it does, the Q-tip doesn't work well if the marriage isn't working well because you can't change beneficiaries uh, and it's illegal to shoot your spouse. Um, <laughs> it still is? Okay. Uh, uh, well, not in Texas, but it's... Uh, uh, so, so, and of course, if the client is not married, you... you you know, I suppose some wag would say, well, then go find someone to marry and do a Q-tip. But I don't think that's a very, that, that, that's a fun uh, conversation. It's not a likely scenario. But, but seriously, we talk to a client, we talk about completed gift trust first, and then we look at uh, uh, the Q-tip. That having been said, when, one other thing. If I did a um, completed gift trust and I sold my $200 million worth of stock to the completed gift trust, yes, that's a taxable event, the sale. But I could make that interest only 
And if that trust does not resell that stock for a two-year period, um, the trust will wind up having uh, the basis of $200 million, selling it tax-free. I, I, I have a completed gift trust going forward, and I'm paying off California very slowly. And you can speculate on whether the client wants to move to Texas or Nevada uh, before the corpus gets uh, paid. So those are the three things you want to think about. Completed gift trust, an installment sale to a completed gift trust. You can't do a flip within the two years or uh, the making use of the Q-tips. Go ahead, David. No, no. So talk to me. I, I love it. I love your creativity. So, so people with existing ings right now come to you and say, okay, Bill, this, this happened to me in California. Can you just simply modify these trusts uh, or do you have to decant into a whole different mechanism? What's, what's the, what's, how, do you, how do you handle that? First of all, one has to read the terms of the trust. Um, the neatest way is having applicable language in the trust permitting a decant into what you want. Um, modifying things always can be a head scratcher and, uh, um, but the decant, it becomes clear. California does have a decanting statute. If we're not changing beneficiaries, we're just changing taxes. Uh, uh, there shouldn't be any problem under the California statute. There's never a problem under the South Dakota statute. And another footnote there where we are doing some interesting modifications. Not here, but we, oh, we have one California trust that we're going to take through a, a South Dakota court in doing a modification uh, because we didn't want to do it as a, as a decant. Um, South Dakota is a great jurisdiction for these things. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question. No, no exactly. No, before, exactly. We get to before we get to yeah, exemptions. You did. And I, I wanted the message, I think, to get out to those listening today is that, you know, um, and I've said it a few times, you know, you have the three workarounds, all is not lost, and the mechanism to modify or decant if necessary and, and sort of retool these to perform the way Bill's talking about isn't onerous or even particularly expensive. So I think that's a message that's not getting out in California. Um, I hope this podcast helps with that and some of the things that the Bridger's going to write. But I you know, certainly encourage anybody that's listening to to reach out to Bill if you have an ing in, in California and, and explore the, the, the workarounds. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, we, we, we don't charge for an exploratory phone call. And you've heard me say this many times, David. We, we, I'll tell a prospective client, I don't care whether you do anything I suggest, but I do care that if you don't do something, you know what you're not doing as opposed to simply not doing what you don't know. Uh, so I, I think for anyone who has an ing, who wants, it's worth finding out, what can I do? I'll give you another uh, possibility with an ing. Let's assume you had your liquidity event and you have a couple hundred million dollars. Um, you could always put the all that cash and marketable securities into a private placement variable life insurance policy using uh, insurance dedicated funds so there's no IRS uh, risk factor. And now you have all of your income it's just going to grow without any tax consequence at all. And you don't care if you have an incomplete gift trust because 
uh, the trust has no income. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to ask you to, to sort of juxtapose the, the, the strategy because that, that strategy gets you to the same place, essentially, right? Is yeah. the ability to avoid the state the state capital gains. And yeah. I know you've led a lot of expertise and written a lot about that as well. Sure. Well, you know, before we get into the exemption and more of the details, could, could, have you heard in your circles um, and by, uh, by other colleagues, I guess, um, rumors of other states following suit here? Um, or is this sort of a sort of a bit of an anomaly here with, with California? Um, and I know New York did it, but that's a little bit different. But what, what, what are you hearing on the street on this? Well, I don't hear anything in New Jersey. Um, um, and uh, the answer is no. Uh, I mean, take Pennsylvania, for example. It's all of a 3% and change tax. There are very few people who spend a fortune in legal fees to avoid a 3% tax. Um, so you're looking at a high tax state that has to feel that it, it's been victimized uh, uh, by the strategy. Uh, I'm just not aware of uh, uh, anyone else who has it on. I mean, people may talk about it, but I'm just not, I have no sensitivity that it's uh, on the verge anyplace else. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I've been, I've gotten that question multiple times, and and I, I don't, I don't run in the same sort of you know, circles as you do. I have no idea of knowing or not knowing. And of course, you'll point out that if another state decides to adopt either the New York or California statute, we'll simply employ the workarounds we have for New York and California in that state. I mean, you also have issues in some of the states of further complexity, uh, where. Um, I mean, take Illinois, for example. Illinois still has a bad statute that, that on the face of it, wants to tax a, a completed gift trust if an Illinois domiciliary set it up, regardless of where the trust is domiciled. You had the Lynn decision where, where the beneficiaries were, at that point, out of state. So you have an added complexity in some of these other states as to their underlying statute taxing trusts established by domiciliaries. That's a subject that would have to be considered in other states, but clearly is, you know, outside the parameters of our California discussion. Sure. Well, and I, I've taken, uh, and I'd love your, your thoughts on this, you know, particularly with um, our new rep office in California. I'm often um, amazed at how much misunderstanding there is. And I, I've heard not only on the, on the ink strategy, but you know, this idea that, you know, a, a California trust is just fine and, and you don't need to go to Nevada or, or South Dakota. And, and although, you know, ing has, has been shot down, we still have the three workarounds and there's still very many other compelling reasons to get trusts out of California or New Jersey or any other high tax state. And, and for a whole myriad of reasons like asset protection and privacy and all the other benefits. So, you know, Bill, I know you travel a lot in, in California and I mean, what is, what is your sort of thought? I mean, do you, do you run into resistance and people telling you, well, no, it's, uh, we're fine in California. How do you respond to that? Well, I try to respond very politely. Um, <laughs> I, I have attorneys who, who say, well, uh, a beneficiary with the power of appointment is doing something a trustee would do. Therefore, under California law, all beneficiaries are trust fiduciaries. You, you know, with that type of thinking, emotionally, you throw up your hands saying, there's, there's no point having a discussion here. Um, so... And, and if you want me to be really cynical about lawyers in general, 
when a, since lawyers like to believe they know virtually everything there is to know about everything. So if they don't know something, they simply say it doesn't work or it can't be done. It's, right. It solves the problem. Um, the, um, uh, there's a more of a doubting Thomas from the people who don't work in this arena. Um, the, but l- let me go back on the Q-tip that I discussed for the client with the $200 million, we're rendering an opinion of counsel on the result. Now, I'm not admitted in California, and my partner, Tammy, who worked with me on the project, isn't admitted either. And I thought that eye candy should say I should have a California-based firm uh, do the opinion. Um, I had one of the most reputable, best-known tax boutiques in California, happy to do the opinion for an astronomical price, uh, and the client decided to go with someone less expensive, uh, where, where the California opinion is basically saying, well, you have a completed gift, therefore the statute doesn't apply. Um, the rest of it we're doing. But my point is that the, the things that we're discussing, I have read um uh, tax memos from other California firms um, basically taking the same position I'm taking with you today. So um, I'm not an outlier in the sense that it's uh, with an office in New Jersey, uh, this is our view of California law. This is consistent with uh, how colleagues uh, view the California situation, and who also were very uh, engaged in creative uh, planning, that the, there may be a plethora of attorneys who simply say it doesn't work. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the client um, is going to make up his mind whether he wants to do business with the plethora or with me or one of the California firms who say it does work. You know, I'm really glad you said that, that you're not an outlier. And, and I, I want to linger on that for a minute because I, over the years I've, I've listened to you speak and I, I know and have read the PLRs that you've, you've received on our mutual clients. And, and when I, when I go to make an introduction to you about any of this, uh, any of the type of planning that you do, I, I don't use the word outlier, but what I, what I say is you're not a cowboy and, and you're not running around selling tax schemes and, and making empty promises. And in fact, I would argue you're, you're exactly the opposite. I mean, you, I, I, the fact that you have the most PLRs on this issue is speaks volumes because you go to the service and you make sure that what you're saying is going to be, you know, acceptable to the service. So you don't put your client in jeopardy. And I, I like that a lot. And I think just because you're doing things creatively and know the rules perhaps better than a lot of other lawyers, that doesn't make you a cowboy or nefarious or, or doing anything that would put your client in, in harm's way. And I think you should be congratulated for that because because uh, uh, it, it's very interesting because when I, when I bring this up or when I talk about it, not at the level you do, I do get the quizzical looks and, the, and they think I'm some sort of a you know, snake oil salesman. And, and there are times I get so frustrated because I think, well, aren't you going to a CLE? Or more importantly, don't you have a don't you have a duty to, to give some sort of you know to tell your client of this possibility, even if you don't understand it? So anyway, but I just wanted you to comment on that. I mean, you are very careful in what you do, and this isn't you're not doing anything salacious. We have a team red line that we don't cross. Um, 
we're, we are not going to do any transaction where we're not willing to sign our names on an opinion. I mean, the firm is, has 1,100 lawyers and an office of general counsel and an opinion committee that vets these things very carefully. If we aren't going to uh, put the firm behind it, we're not going to do it. Uh, I mean, there are things that seem interesting, Um uh, uh, we had one this morning that had nothing to do with California, had something to do with an exception to uh, 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 a, a Section 351 transaction. And I said, I'm not willing to render an opinion on that. If the client wants to uh, take the risk, uh, he can take the risk, uh, but I'm not going to do, uh, render an opinion and I'm not going to uh, lawyer that transaction. Um, it's, it's, I think that type of, I wouldn't call conservatism, but that type of a, of a standard that we've imposed upon ourselves is good for us as a law firm. And it's also good for our clients that, uh, uh, we aren't snake oil salesmen. Um, the good Lord gave the human being the ability to either swing a golf club or or read regulations and interpret them. In my case, he, <laughs> he allowed me to read regulations and interpret them, and the swing of my golf club is 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 a, is a sight to behold for all the bad reasons. Uh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> That's great. Well, let, let's go back to the California uh, change here. Um, you know, where we let's talk about the exception, what it means, and, and how how to interpret that. Well, first of all, we don't know what it means. We know what it says. There's the major exception is where it, it says ninety. The statute says the. The whole rule on incomplete gift, non-grantor trust, everything we've spoken about for the last period of time does not apply if 90% or more of the distributable net income of the incomplete gift, non-grantor trust uh, is distributed or treated as being distributed uh, to a charity. Now, that's a head-scratcher. The... the and the statute defines an incomplete non-grantor trust in conformity with the Internal Revenue Code. But when they used the phrase distributable net income, they did not. Well, does that mean the board's free to make up any definition it wants? Well, that's going to be difficult because there is a California statute that says that for trust taxation... There's a particular sub uh, subpart of the Internal Revenue Code that applies unless it expressly does not apply. And what I'm about to talk about is all covered by that. So I'm about to launch into, in discussing the exception, an interpretation of DNI, distributable net income, uh, under the Internal Revenue Code that I can argue by statutory requirement must be applied to the... Um, uh, this thing now there that it comes up in two ways. If you have a, a South Dakota trust and you shove in an, uh, a subchapter S company and you file an ESBT election, the Internal Revenue Code says that's treated like a separate little trust. You pay taxes, but there's no DNI. So 
you, you stare out the window, Dave, and you say, well, if I take my $100 million and put it into a sub-S company, um, I've just wiped out um, DNI, and if I only have $5 a year of interest income, I give that to charity, and the balance, we're, we're home free. That's an interesting point of view. I mean, let me make one other one, then, then I'll circle back. Generally, as you know, DNI does not include capital gains. Well, go back to my, my client about to, on the two hundred million dollars. I can take the position that the, all of that capital gain, none of it, is DNI, and therefore, again, if I pay out five or ten dollars of interest income, I escape the capital gains tax. Um, this year, and I didn't have to do the the Q tips. The, the 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 these two exceptions, the the using the Internal Revenue Code concept of DNI, and saying that the uh, the phrase not defined in seventeen oh eighty two is um, man is mandatory. You know, just just because people listening sort of want to know where where this stuff comes from, other than my imagination, the 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 the, the, the California Revenue and Tax Code section seventeen seven thirty one little a in parentheses, and if I'll, I'll read you the one sentence, subchapter J of chapter one of subtitle A of the Internal Revenue Code relating to estates, trusts, beneficiaries, and decedents shall apply except as otherwise provided. My goodness, David, that's what that's the legislation. How can the board take a contrary position? Now, <laughs> I think that anyone, I'm willing to render an opinion more likely than not. I mean, what, what the heck? I have the California uh, statute on my side. Um, one can expect pushback or who knows what a judge will do. Uh, they could always amend the statute if enough people read read about this or that it happens. But th those are two interesting exceptions. But having said what I said, what I'm talking about on these two exceptions to circumvent the whole statute, I subordinate in significance to what we talked about on the, the major workarounds where I don't have this type of vagary on the meaning of a phrase within 17082. But for sure, if I'm talking to anybody with a California situation, I want to put this on the table for them to consider. We can discuss uh, what it is. They can prognosticate on what will be done. And, um, you know, uh, if I if the issue was to pay thirteen point four percent on two hundred million dollars, or rely on um, the uh, California statute I just read out loud, um, if it were my money, I might say for thirteen point four percent of two hundred million dollars, I'll rely on seventeen seven thirty one a. It's an interesting situation. Uh, perhaps it's just perhaps it's just something other than the neatest amount of drafting by the non-tax lawyers who draft, who modified the New York statute to, to draft this provision. <laughs> 
No, this is all very intriguing, and, I, I, and it's it's important. You know, devils into details, like always, right? And this is what we're talking about: is, is understanding the details, and and that's what's so great about it. Well, what I mean for for the audience, I guess maybe as we as we kind of try to summarize some of this, I mean, what what else is is germane to to be thinking about um, about the change and and any any other maybe the throwback rules or something to talk a little bit more about in ter- under or how they may be affected. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, the throwback rules aren't affected. In New York, um, you have a throwback rule that only applies uh, um, to DNI. In California, applies to all income. That was true a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. It's true today. So anytime you have a distribution from a, a trust that where but for it being a non-grantor trust, would have been subject to California tax. California wants to tax it. I should add that California regulations don't spell out that when a distribution is made from a trust, is it first in, first out, or last in, first out? In other words, if I have a $10 million trust and I have $100,000 of income and I distribute 100000 is that just current income I'm carrying out, or is it current income plus I have a throwback of some sort? Um, most practitioners in California will think that your your distribution from the trust is going to carry out current income first and accumulated uh, income second. But this whole the the there are a lot of workarounds people talk about. Uh, uh, on the throwback. Uh, people think about loans. People think about decanting to other trusts and saying it doesn't apply to another trust. Um, people think about shoving the money into, again, go back to our private placement, and then when you borrow money from the policy that's not income, uh, or when the insured dies, that's uh, tax-free under uh, the, the code. Um, the, I, I think the real takeaway is that anyone who has a situation where they would have been interested in an incomplete non-grantor trust should still have the conversation with an advisor who's familiar with, the, with 17082 as well as the workarounds and the exceptions um, to see if there's st- something along those lines they they want to uh, do. It's it it complicates it. There, there's a bit more to think about, but it's definitely not the end of the world. And that's a, a great way. To, I think you you summarized it perfectly. And uh, and you know, as usual, I learned a couple of things from me again going through this. I, that's the message I'm trying to send um, too. Um, that it's not the end of the world. And for those of you listening, of course, uh, who may have clients or or you may yourself may have an in California, I, I certainly encourage you to reach out to to Bill and let him let him do some thinking and brainstorming around um, what can be done because clearly we know. Uh, there are strategies, and they're legal, and they're appropriate. And I always say, those who know the game of chess, uh, the rules of chess, always uh, t- tend to perform better. And that's what Bill is. He's a tremendous uh, chess player. And you know, I can't thank you enough uh, again, Bill, for taking the time to go through all of this and, and share this, uh, your expertise and, and your and your clever thinking. This has been my pleasure. This is 
far more fun having this conversation with you than uh, going back into the office for the, the the daily stress. So I thank you for the opportunity. No, absolutely. So once again, this is uh, Bill Lipkin. Uh, his information and uh, and website and contact uh, details will certainly be attached to this. But uh, again, one last time, thanks again, Bill. It's been a pleasure talking today, and and our friendship is very valuable to me as well as everything you've taught me. So thanks again. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.